welcome back to Thread, a questions and sometimes answers podcast about Judaism. I'm your host, Rabbi Ariana Katz, and this is episode two. And maybe one day we will get on a predictable release schedule. I'm coming for you with a very stuffy nose and a love for Torah, so let's see how this goes. Today's question comes from so many people, including Gracie and Michael and Julia, who ask, How does one relate to prayer that mentions God when one doesn't believe in a supernatural God? What even is praying without God? I've gotten a few questions specifically about prayer from y'all already, so we'll start here and talk about God and prayer and supernaturalism, and then save more about the who, what, when, where, and especially how for future episodes. So thank you, Michael, Gracie, Julia, for this really important question. What do those of us who don't believe in God do with all the liturgy that calls God a ruler, redeemer, savior, king, vengeance taker? What happens when you dare to read the English translations of a prayer and blammo your bubble bursts? Who chose us over all other nations? Who made me a woman? Who causes the blind to see? Who frees the captive, ever loving and compassionate? Those things don't always feel true. And if you don't believe in a supernatural God, they definitely aren't possible. To start, and we'll spend more time learning from her work at the end of the episode, Rabbi Toba Spitzer writes so beautifully in this sermon from God in Metaphor. She says, For many people, attending High Holy Day services is a bit like going to a play where you really don't like the main character, where much of the time you doubt the very existence of the main character. If the main character in our traditional High Holy Days liturgy is God, this can be quite a problem for anyone seeking meaningful spiritual experience. Many of the dominant images of divinity that we encounter during these days of awe God as king, as the power over, who will live and who will die, as heavenly father, fail to resonate with or actively repel many contemporary Jews. We're then left either to suspend our disbelief, be happy that we can't understand the Hebrew, or just close our eyes and enjoy the music in order to make it through. She's so good. One of the pieces to lift up from this, a place that I want to start, is when Rabbi Spitzer says that we should be um, happy that we can't understand the Hebrew. And this experience of saying prayers without having to interrogate their meaning or how closely it mirrors your own belief is particularly unique to faith traditions where the liturgy is not in the native language of the congregation. So for any of us who are speaking and praying in the liturgical Hebrew but not fluent, and biblical Hebrew and liturgical Hebrew is different than even spoken modern Hebrew, so that's all of us, we have the luxury of avoiding the uncomfortable translation issue. So that is actual strategy number one. For how to relate to prayer when God isn't your speed. Accept that the meaning of the words are not the reason you're praying, and honor all the other things that bring you to Davin instead. That can be empowering, to say, I pray these words because of tradition, because they are comforting, because this is what Jews do, regardless of what I think about it. Jonathan Zimmerman wrote in this 2013 piece I found on Tablet called An Atheist Synagogue Search, There is inherent value in saying words I do not mean, praying to a God I do not believe in, and kissing a Torah I do not believe was written by God. There is a poetic richness as a non-believer participating in this tradition, in being an Israelite named for a mythological story about wrestling with a fictional deity that birthed a very real people. That last moment is a reference to Jacob, who in the Torah, when he wrestles with an unknown person, maybe an angel, an emissary of God, is given a new name, Yisrael. So to be an Israelite is to quite literally be a God wrestler. Okay, so that's one approach. Thanks, Jonathan. So next, 
I learned this teaching from Elliot Botsedek and the Fringes Chavara, which is a feminist non-Zionist Chavara in Philly. Chavarot are self-governing groups of people who come together to pray and be in community. So Elliot taught me this quote from Rabbi Rachel Adler, and Rabbi Adler was one of the first theologians and ethicists that integrated feminist perspectives and concerns into Jewish text interpretation and the renewal of Jewish law and ethics. She's a professor now at Hebrew Union College in LA, and my friend Rabbi Laura used to have her desk that she wrote on secondhand, but that's not really relevant, but it's amazing. So Beshem Elliot Batzedek, Beshem Rabbi Rachel Adler, this question. If we don't mean the words we say when we're praying, then why are we praying? Which brings us to actual strategy number two, 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 two. After thorough investigation of your Sidor, that's your prayer book, and finding that the story that it weaves is not one you can personally abide, find other words to say. Either completely depart from the system and order of the traditional Jewish liturgy, or make small shifts so you stay in that mode. And we'll talk about both. In the vein of the Reconstructionist Torah blessing, that instead of the traditional Asher Bacharbanu Mikol Ha'amim, who chose us from all other nations, the Reconstructionist blessing is Asher Karavanu Avodato, who draws us closer to God's works. Change the words, stay in the format of the prayers, but shift the words and images that you cannot abide. For another example, I will often say Ruach HaOlam, Spirit of the Universe, instead of Melech HaOlam, King of the Universe, because like the prophet Samuel, I am inherently suspicious of the monarchic system. So an easy fix when blessing wine to say Baruch Atah Adoshem Elokeinu Ruach HaOlam Borei Pri Hagafen instead of Baruch Atah Adoshem Elokeinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri Hagafen. It keeps me in the flow of the prayer, actually allows me to pray well with others, and just have a moment of cacophony, and we're fine, if not a little confused for where. Or perhaps like the humanistic Judaism blessing over wine that says Bruchim HaAzama. We rejoice in the earth, the sun, and the rain, which produces the fruit of the vine. So another mode that fits in with actual strategy number two, 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 is to find other liturgy. If the issue is relating to prayers that give God the sole power and rulership over the earthly domain, is there a different prayer you might say? Maybe it is like that humanistic Judaism blessing. Or maybe it's another piece of contemporary liturgy that'll do the trick. Forever big ups to movement elder and artist and historian and poet and activist and healer, Aurora Levens Morales, for her Vehavta. And... Continued forever big ups to the poet and healer Marge Piercy for her interpretive Amida, linked on the blog. There is such art and beauty out of actually finding words to pray that feel honest and integrated and true. And another one, actual strategy number three. It's all metaphor. Words, as we have them, are empty. They are just symbols and tools we use to explain this gigantic world and life among us. So our friend Rabbi Toba Spitzer continues in that sermon, God in Metaphor. To make real use of our liturgy, it is helpful to remember that the words in our prayer book were written as poetry, as evocative metaphors to foster certain mind states and attitudes in those who interact with them. Instead of asking, do I believe this? We can ask of a prayer, where is this trying to take me? Metaphors like king and creator of the universe are intended to help us feel our own relative smallness in relation to the cosmos, to invoke a sense of humility and service, while at the same time suggesting that there is something in the vastness that both cares about us and holds us accountable. As with any metaphors, we need to remember that these are not definitions of God. 
They are poetic entryways into an experience of something, both within and around us. We can also begin to employ new old metaphors for the divine. Water, makom, place or rootedness. Rachamana, compassionate. Ruach, spirit. Ehyeh, the process of being. Echad, oneness. So that's another take. Maybe using other words help you connect with other powerful forces that move through this world but don't require a belief in God. In response to this question overall, I'm thinking about the Rambam, as I do. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon was born in 1135 in Cordoba, Spain, and is one of the most prolific and influential Torah scholars. He was also an astronomer and a physician. Why not? Rambam held fast to apophatic theology, so that's also known as negative theology. It's impossible, said the Rambam, to say anything at all about God. He writes in chapter 50 of the Guide for the Perplexed, Those who believe that God is one, and he has many attributes, declare the unity with their lips and assume the plurality in their thoughts. Meaning, if you say anything about God, you're reducing God to just that one thing. But instead, you can say what God is not all you want. The Rambam also wrote, All we understand is the fact that God exists that God is a being to whom none of Adonai's creatures is similar, who has nothing in common with them, who does not include plurality, who is never too feeble to produce other beings, and whose relation to the universe is that of a steersman to a boat, and that even this is not a real relation, a real simile, but serves only to convey to us the idea that God rules the universe, that it is God who gives it duration and preserves its necessary arrangement. Okay, so, but this is totally at odds with what we see in the Sidor, in the prayer book. What you might call a positive theology, or apparently a cataphatic theology, but that is not something you learn how to pronounce in rabbinical school. God is a warrior in the Sidor. God is a lover. God is the one who makes the sun and the moon and the stars in the correct positions. The position of positive theology opens up in actual strategy number four. That is, connect with the images you can connect with and leave the rest. So how did we get from Rambam saying, God is so infinite we cannot describe God, or God is so infinite we have to use all our words we have to describe God to make this a possible resource for people who don't believe in a supernatural God? Let's see if we can make it work. In communal group prayer, no one person can ever have their position or views fully reflected. And according to positive and negative theology, we can never actually get at the core of what God is for those of us who believe in God. So if the positive theology of the Sidor is trying to take lots of little bites, follow the more is more philosophy, and say everything they want about God, you can too. Take little bites from the liturgy and hold true the things that work for you and leave the rest. Maybe it's the things that feel true about the people Yisrael, or the poetry of moments of liberation, or the themes of love and care that the Sidor speaks of, outside of an existence of God. Core to this question of how does one relate to prayer that mentions God when one doesn't believe in a supernatural God is, why relate to prayer at all? What is it about the prayer experience that draws you into this tradition? Is it an opportunity for mindfulness? Is it obligation? A feeling that praying three times a day is a mitzvah from our teachers? Is it community? A sense that something happens in a room where people are singing? Whatever the reason, being drawn to prayer without a belief that there is a being on the other end of the phone is a powerful, and I believe, hopefully, empowering concept. Your use of the technology of prayer is because of another draw, be it to mitzvot observance, communal practice, preservation of tradition. 
I want to invite you to see this as an opportunity for creativity, for continuing the Jewish project of finding yourself in the tradition and making sense of the parts you've inherited from the people who came before you. To close, these words from Mary Oliver of Blessed Memory, which are printed in our Hinenu Sidor. Praying by Mary Oliver. It doesn't have to be the blue iris. It could be weeds in a vacant lot or a few small stones. Just pay attention, then patch a few words together, and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. So if you're sitting there with your own opinions, screaming at this podcast, please send me a voice memo, send me an email. I so, so want to hear your hot takes, please. And we'll even play them on the next episode. This week's continued reading are a couple of really juicy nuggets. So the first is a lecture I had the opportunity to hear live uh, this past January in New York from Rabbi Jason Rubenstein, which is All Revelation Begins with Heartbreak, Radical Faith in Torah and Ourselves from Rambam to Plaskow. The next is that article I referenced from Jonathan Zimmerman on tablet from way back in 2013, An Atheist's Synagogue Search. And the last is Rabbi Toba Spitzer's High Holiday Sermon, God and Metaphor, A Guide for the Perplexed. Those are all linked on the blog at arianacats.com slash thread. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. The next episode will be out before Passover, Netter, which means no promises, but hopefully. If you have a question you want to hear me answer eventually, you can go to bit.ly slash thread podcast or arianacats.com slash thread. Be in touch. You can email me, rabbi at h-i-n-e-n-u, baltimore.org. And you can join us at Hinenu for a service or some learning. Find our whole schedule at hinenubaltimore.org. Thank you to Alyssa Martell for the thread art and Lori Spector of Hothead for the music. To Julia and Gracie and Michael for this awesome question. Until next time, bye!